according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Isaiah. Today we are in Isaiah chapter 17. Isaiah chapter 17. We have dealt with Moab the last couple of Sundays from chapter 15 and chapter 16. We begin an oracle about Damascus starting today in chapter 17. And then uh, a context that we'll cross into next week because the final few verses, 12, 13, and 14 of this chapter uh, feeds into the message in uh, chapter 18, the land of warring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush. And so we'll deal with that. We'll use today to introduce that as we uh, come to the end of our time today. So uh, two weeks dealing with Damascus and related eschatological issues. The oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city, and it will become a fallen ruin. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks to lie down in, and there will be no one to frighten them. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and sovereignty from Damascus and the remnant of Aram. They will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, this introduces our chapter. Before we get started, let's go to the Lord in a moment of prayer, asking him to take hold of our thinking, to humble us under the truth of his word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning for the truth of your word and once again for the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together. We thank you for your faithfulness. Your faithfulness is displayed every day, every morning. Your mercies are renewed. Great is thy faithfulness. And Father, this morning your faithfulness is revealed as we study the word of God because the word of God is not dependent upon how smart we are to figure these things out. The word of God is dependent upon how faithful you are to open the eyes of our understanding, to teach us the truth from your, from your word. And so we thank you this morning that once again your faithfulness will be manifest. Your word will not return void. You will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. We ask that we might be humble to receive it. I pray, Father, that we would receive it as it's given. In Jesus Christ's name I do pray. Amen. All right, remember we're dealing with a string of these oracles. There's 10 of them all together, not counting the one that started it all, the two chapters we dealt with, with Babylon in 13 and 14. We then, starting with Philistia and then moving on to Moab, we're starting to go through a portion of this book that has a string of rebukes, a string of oracle messages, burdens, against these particular nations, the neighboring nations surrounding Israel. So Isaiah's next oracle concerns Damascus. And this one may actually be the easiest of all the oracles that, we, that we're dealing with because uh, it's not like we can look on a map today and, and look around and see Philistia or we can't look on a map today and see Moab. We don't have uh, headlines in the newspapers about any of those places. But Damascus still exists. Damascus, the, city of, the capital city of Syria, Damascus still exists. And it's in the news fairly often. We see uh, reports from Damascus from time to time. And, uh, and so this is a message that will hopefully um, be a benefit to us as we see it and see how it connects to all the other oracle messages. We also want to understand that as with the Moab oracle, 
the viewpoint of this message is going to shift from the 7th century B.C. to the eschatological future. What do we mean by eschatological? We mean prophecy. Uh, the eschaton is the last day, right? The eschatoi, the last days, the end times, as it were. And the end times we've not yet reached, okay, in one sense. Um, this is the last day because we're in the church age, but what follows the church age? What follows once the, the church is complete and God resumes his program with Israel? Okay? These nations he's going to start to deal with. He's going to start to deal with the whole world in, in a mighty way. So as with the Moab Oracle, which we saw last week and the week before, the viewpoint of this message shifts from the 7th century B.C. to the eschatological future. And it's important that we identify that shift. We identify what are the circumstances of Damascus during the day and age in which Isaiah is speaking, and then what are the circumstances of Damascus that are are still looking into the future, that are looking for the fulfillment when Jesus Christ returns at Second Advent. They look forward to the fulfillment when Jesus Christ comes and defeats Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon. And how do we know whether we're talking about historical Damascus or eschatological Damascus? How do we know if we're talking about historical Babylon or eschatological Babylon? How do we know in all of these things? Okay, That's why we do our work. <laughs> That's why we study to show ourselves approved. That's why we rightly divide the word of truth. That's why we have hermeneutical controls on every passage of Scripture we deal with so that these uh, decisions are not left to our own imagination to our own um, say-so, all right? We're not uh, simply following a scheme or following a system because um, Schofield wrote it that way in his Schofield study Bible. Or Pastor Theme wrote about it in his books or, or any other human being wrote about it. There are controls in the text. And so we teach it as an exposition of the text and we show what those markers are in the text. The reason why we are on solid ground accepting these views for the way they are. And then you can check it out for yourself. The only way to be noble-minded like the Bereans is to search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. And if I'm trying to feed you something that's not found in the Scriptures, don't accept it. Don't swallow it. Just because Pastor Bob said so? No, check it out. Look in the text. See if it's there. Search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. And I believe that we're going to demonstrate this. We're going to demonstrate the shift. We're going to demonstrate the view to the future that we're going to view by virtue of its context and its parallel use in other parts of the Bible. Now, the first thing we look at here in verse 1 is, Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city. Okay? And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, Damascus still is a city. Damascus is still a city to this day. So we, want, we have to understand the context for what does it mean to be about to be, okay? Or you beautiful Southerners and Texans, you have that marvelous phrase, fixin' to, all right? Which I have totally embraced since emigrating to Texas. Fixin' to, all right? We might rephrase this with the Texas Bible. Or behold, Damascus is fixin' to be removed from being a city, all right? And that's how close it is. See, the language of urgency, if something's about to take place, then it could happen at any moment. Like our rapture of the church, that trumpet could sound today, could sound right now. It's the sense of urgency that this oracle communicates. The Assyrian conquest of Damascus did not remove it from being a city. It did not leave it as a fallen ruin. The language here is pretty clear. 
removed from being a city, and it will become a fallen ruin, which is a somewhat redundant. Every ruin is a fallen ruin, all right? But it, it doubles the terms up, and it makes it clear that we're talking about a non-inhabited place. It's certainly not a city. It's not even habitable. People can't live there. They wouldn't want to live there when this judgment is complete. And ultimately speaking, that's going to be the nature of it in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Possibly even before the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. If this event is like Psalm 83 or like Ezekiel 38, some of these prophetic events are either in the tribulation or after the church and before the tribulation. All right, If you've ever done studies on that, you know what I'm talking about. So the... Uh, the fact is, this was not fulfilled historically in the 7th century B.C. The fact that this prophecy is restated in Jeremiah is proof, all right? That's because this is our hermeneutical control. We are going to compare this scripture with Jeremiah. We're going to compare the scriptures together with the scriptures. And sure, Isaiah is writing before the Assyrian conquest, a little bit before, a little bit after. But Jeremiah, when he writes, is completely after completely after. You can't take an author that follows an event and act as if he's predicting an event, right? Be like saying, you know, John Steinbeck was writing before the Civil War. No, he wasn't. He was a World War II correspondent, okay? And to try to make a claim that you were ahead of time when you weren't is fraud. God doesn't do that. So we have the Isaiah message describing the uh, destruction of Damascus, and then we have the parallel Jeremiah message describing the destruction of Damascus after Assyria had already come in and swept away the Arameans and the, and the northern kingdom of Israel. You see what I'm saying? And so these are the hermeneutical clues. These are the control values that we have in the scripture. So if you open up a commentary on Isaiah, and I've got dozens of them, and the majority of which say the fulfillment of Isaiah 17 was when the Assyrians invaded, then you know you've got a flawed Bible commentary. And it's not alone, there's dozens of them, okay? The fulfillment of Isaiah 17 is ultimately eschatological. And we know that by comparing Scripture to Scripture. When the Assyrians invaded, they didn't level the city, they made use of the city. They took many of the Arameans away, and then they repopulated it with some other people they had conquered before. That's how the Assyrians operated. And so some people they had conquered in the east, they brought them and they transplanted them and put them in Damascus. And they took the Arameans out of Damascus and they hauled them back east and set them somewhere else. Like they moved into Israel and they took the northern tribes away. And then they brought in some folks from the east and planted them there called Samarians. All right? That's how the Samarians ended up in that region of Israel. The Assyrians put them there. But they kept it as a city. It wasn't a ruin. It wasn't uninhabited. It was a city. They made it the capital city of that Assyrian province. It was a very useful city. There's a reason why cities get put where they get put, okay? Because usually there's water, there's rivers, there's springs, especially if you're on the edge of a desert and you want to be at a nice oasis, a nice water source. The, river, the Far Far River, for example, the, the, the waters of Damascus, the Arameans were very proud of, of their particular waters, you know, after the uh, Assyrians came through, Damascus has been conquered again and again and again and again. Nebuchadnezzar conquered it. His father, Nabopolassar, conquered it. The Babylonians took, uh, took Damascus away from the Assyrians. And then the Persians took it, right? Darius took it. Conquered by the, the Persians after uh, they, uh, or even before they took Babylon in the process there. Then Alexander took it. 
The Greeks took it, or you want to call them the Macedonians, that's fine, but it's the combined Macedonians and Greeks. The Greeks took Damascus. And it was still a city. Now they built a bigger city called Antioch, and Antioch kind of became more prominent, but Damascus continued to exist. It exists to this day. It existed throughout the Old Testament, in between the two Testaments, on into the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus, after all, in that famous episode in Acts chapter 9. So we know from the Bible that Damascus historically has never been uh, destroyed the way this prophecy says it will. And that leaves us to consider one of two possibilities. Either A, the Bible's wrong, and God made a mistake in a prophecy that he gave, or, if you find that unacceptable, then B, it's still going to happen, it just hasn't happened yet. It is, don't say it's not fulfilled, say it is yet unfulfilled, but still promised for the future. And that's what Jesus taught his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. Everything spoken of through the scriptures must be fulfilled. We just want to have the right timing for when it will be fulfilled. By the way, the Greeks weren't the last people to come through there. The Nabataeans went through there. They were an Arab tribe. The Nabataeans went through there. Then the Romans, Pompey, the general Pompey or Pompey, however you prefer to pronounce that. The Romans took it, became a Roman capital. In fact, they, it, was, it was the center of Roman rule so much so that the Syrian province was really the main focus of Roman attention. Judea was kind of an afterthought, and a lot of times Judea was governed from Damascus in many cases. And then a whole bunch of Arabs came through, starting in 634, 637 AD, okay? It remained Roman all that time, Roman and Byzantine all that time. And then a bunch of Arabs came through, and it's been conquered and conquered and conquered and conquered again. If you ever want to do some fun study, study Islam, study the Arab waves, study the conquests. Damascus is a good illustration, or you could use Jerusalem, you could use um, any of them are good conquests, because I believe if you have an understanding of the different Islamic invasions, you don't fall for the sensationalism of Joel Richardson. You don't fall for the sensationalism of the people selling books today trying to convince you that Antichrist is Muslim are trying to convince you that there's a fifth empire after Rome. Okay? The statue of Daniel has four parts. The beasts in Daniel are four beasts. There are only four prophetic kingdoms. It's Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And it's after the feet of clay that, that Christ comes. All right? Now, whew. <laughs> if that blew over your head, don't worry about it. <clears throat> but that is a whole realm of study in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation that has Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome in that order. And then Jesus Christ, when he comes back at second advent, is going to crush eschatological Rome. All right? But there are people selling books today that are all going to try to convince you that Antichrist is Muslim and that the end times all has to do with Muslims surrounding Jerusalem. I'm here to tell you that Muslims are irrelevant for biblical prophecy. And they try to find a a single empire of Muslims. You can't do such a thing. Because after the... uh, you know who conquered Damascus, who took Damascus away from the Byzantine Romans? It was the Umayyad Arab tribes, the Umayyad uh, Caliphate, all right, and referencing a particular tribe of Arabs. But they got replaced by the Abbasids, all right, another Arab clan. And the Abyssinian um, Caliphate was different than the Umayyad Caliphate, different from the Rashidun, which was even before the Umayyad Arabs, okay? Then the Fatimid 
The Fatimid Arabs came through. These are different clans, different tribes, different branches of Arabs that conquered Damascus. And then it wasn't even Arabs anymore. Then it was Turks. And don't confuse your Seljuk Turks with your Ottoman Turks. The Seljuk Turks came through, and that's when things really got bad. All right, If you ever study the Crusades or study medieval uh, history. And uh, in between the uh, Seljuk Turks, you had the Kurds. You know, Saladin was a Kurd. That's the thing, you know, the, the Muslims today view Saladin as this great hero because he had victories over the, over the, uh, the Crusaders and he, he took Jerusalem back from the, from the Christians. And, and uh, Saladin, is, uh, there's a lot of romanticism today about Saladin. He was, he was a Kurd, which is bizarre because the Arabs today despise the Kurds. The Arabs, the Turks, all those groups, they, they, they despise the Kurds completely. Then you had the Mamluks. You have the slave, the eunuch slaves out of Egypt. And uh, they conquered Damascus for a time. Then, as I said, the Ottoman Turks came through. They held it for the longest. The Ottoman Turks, right up until the 20th century, right up until uh, World War I, Damascus was held by the Ottoman Turks. Up until Lawrence of Arabia. And the uh, British-assisted Arabs again, King Faisal and, and the different Arab tribes there, um, the British-assisted Arabs took Damascus. And then finally, as if that's not depressing enough, the French, you know? When was the last time the French conquered anybody? Probably here. All right? <laughs> I tease. But the point is, that's a whole lot of people conquering Damascus. And every time they do, they don't raise it to the ground. They leave it in place because it's a great place. It's, it's strategic, it's tactical, it's, it's got resources, it's got water, it's on the edge of the desert, it, it commands uh, uh, trade routes, it commands uh, transportation and communication in the region. It is, a, uh, it is a marvelous place for a city, and why would it be removed as a city? Well, God will do so in his judgment. It's going to become a city, it's going to become a ruin, it's going to become a haunt when we start to study those passages, and that is, it becomes a curse. Um, it becomes a, uh, a venue where only the jackals, where only the demons and the fallen angels are going to be imprisoned during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, for example. We also have additional information given in verses 2 and 3. When Damascus is removed from existence, northern Israel, called Ephraim here, northern Israel will no longer require fortifications against that line of attack i.e. the Golan Heights, which we see in the news all the time. The Golan Heights that sit in between Israel and Syria. The high ground, whereby if the Arabs have it, they're going to be launching rockets down on the Jews. If the Jews have it, they can keep the Arabs from launching rockets down on the Jews. Okay? And Israel seized the Golan Heights in 1967, and they're not about to give them back. All right? Well, they won't need the Golan Heights anymore once... Yahweh Elohim makes an example of Damascus. It is going to be left as a haunt. It's going to be left as a, as a testimony. And the Gentiles are going to fear God. I believe even the Muslims are going to fear the God of Israel at that point, assuming Islam is still a feature of, uh, of the world. And I don't believe it will be. I think in conjunction with Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38, I believe Islam is going to be removed as a global, as a global power, as a global influence. But that's a, that's a study for a different day. 
But the, uh, the territory on this is interesting, and if you want more, um, you, can, you can look at it. Even the modern maps, you can look at it and see the strategic location there between Damascus and Israel, how close Damascus is to Israel. Different, uh, different things there. I won't take the time this morning since we're going to be short on it, but if you use the Logos software, there's some great maps in there, and then it gives you the option to, to bring up a, a modern-day map in, in Google Maps. And uh, I didn't know they had Google Maps back in Isaiah's day, but you can click on the button and it'll show you the Google Maps to uh, Damascus and you can see the, the territory I'm talking about between Damascus and Israel and why you want to hold that high ground in the Golan region. All right. Then we get to verses 4 through 11. Isaiah 17, verses 4 through 11. So as we notice here, here's the destruction in verses 1 and 2. It'll be removed from being a city. It'll become fallen ruin. Um, the cities of Aurora, I think is, there's a better translation for that, but eternally forsaken. There will be for flocks to lie down in. There will be no one to frighten them. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim. They won't need defenses anymore. Ephraim won't need defenses because sovereignty is gone from Damascus. The remnant of Aram, they will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. Did you know the destruction of your enemies is to your glory? The destruction of your enemies is to your glory. The destruction of Yahweh's enemies is to Yahweh's glory. It is to Israel's glory. When did David have peace in his land? King David had peace in his kingdom when he was done defeating his enemies on every side. Peace always comes through military victory. Unlike certain philosophies today, whereby we're going to negotiate, we're going to find a common ground, we're going to coexist with people that don't want to coexist with us. We're going to negotiate a peace with people that want us dead. Or, biblically speaking, we destroy those that are opposed to the Lord. I'm talking about Israel, not a theocracy, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm not advocating this for, uh, for Austin Bible Church to go out there and start killing people. What I'm saying is, is peace through military victory has always been the design for humanity. And Israel will have their peace when their enemies are destroyed. So, um, now in that day, in that day, starting in verse 4, the glory of Jacob will fade. Now before we even start to look at this, there are three in that day applications in these verses. So we, it's helpful if we see the structure of the passage before we start tearing into each particular verse. There are three in that day applications that are then described in verses 4 through 11. And you do real well to notice the syntax, to notice the structure of the passage before you start tearing into it and trying to break it down word by word. And you don't even need the Hebrew to do this. You can see it in the English text. It says, now in that day. You see that in verse 4? And it tells you a bunch of stuff. And then verse 7. In that day, you see that in that day there? You put your finger on that in that day there? So you got, you got a finger on verse 4 in that day, and you got a finger on verse 7 in that day, and then if you're not out of fingers, you can put another finger on verse 9 in that day. And in between these in that day statements are some important stuff, okay? Some, some content that we want to make application for, that we want to understand for what it is. And it's, it's these three things that I think serves to deliver the essence of what's going to happen here eschatologically. 
either in the tribulation or possibly even in the church or after the church and before the tribulation. All right? And that's, again, if you've never studied eschatology, if you don't know what I'm talking about, we know that Jesus Christ can't come and start conquering quite yet because we're still here. All right? We know that when he comes to conquer, he's going to land on the earth. His feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives. We know that. And we know that when he does that, when his feet touch the Mount of Olives, that that mountain is going to split by a monster earthquake. And half of it goes to the north and half of it goes to the south. And all of a sudden, there's a brand new valley right in the middle there. (laughs) Wasn't there before, but he lands on it and boom, there's a valley now. Just to the east of Jerusalem and they'll have their way of escape that uh, they didn't know about before, right? And uh, different applications there. Then Jesus lands and, and goes into battle. We have all the, 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 the conflict that takes place in all the different battles of Armageddon, from Edom to Moab to, to uh, Teman, all these different regions, to Basra, back to finally ending in the Valley of Megiddo, in Har Megiddo, Armageddon. Okay? But we know that can't happen today. Why do we know that can't happen today? What's, what's the problem with, with Sunday, January 11th? Why can't that happen today? Because there are many other things that have to happen first. For example, I mean, how is he going to go and attack Antichrist if Antichrist hasn't been unveil, unveiled yet? Right? Antichrist has to be unveiled. There has to be a covenant between Israel and Antichrist. It's a seven-year covenant that he's going to make and then break halfway through. They have to have a temple first because there's, Antichrist is going to set a, an idol up in that temple. He's going to sit himself in the temple, displaying himself as being God. That hadn't happened yet. There is a long list of things that has to precede the second advent of Jesus Christ. And so clearly, none of that can all happen today. But you know what can happen today? The rapture of the church can happen today. There's a trumpet that's going to sound, and it can sound at any moment. And there is nothing, not one thing, zero, not one thing has to happen between now and the trumpet. Not one thing. There is nothing that hinders the trumpet from sounding right now except for the grace and mercy of God that in his patience is allowing the gospel to go forth. That trumpet could sound now and we'll be out of here, okay? The body of Christ will be out of here. And then God will resume his plan and program for Israel and for the nations. And so we put these things together. We want to understand the in that day application. It does not pertain to the church. It pertains to Israel and their neighboring enemies. Okay? Israel and their neighboring enemies. Now, where we want to have just a slight note of caution is that just as the nation of Israel was founded in 1948, during the church age, there's nothing that would keep Damascus from being destroyed today. If God wanted to fulfill Isaiah 17 and bring Damascus to an end today, he can do that. There is nothing that, there's nothing in Isaiah 17 that says that happens after the rapture, okay? Or even that it happens in the tribulation. There is no time setting. It just says in that day, in that day, in that day. And I think we'll find in the context here what we're, what we're looking at. So let's deal with it, all right? Could it happen in our lifetime? Might we see this before the rapture? Like the Psalm 83 invasion. Might we see that before the rapture? What about the Gog-Magog attack of Ezekiel 38? Might we see that before the rapture? Okay. I can't prove that we won't. I tend to think that they're after the rapture before the tribulation. Maybe that's the biggest news flash you've got going for you this morning. 
Just if the rapture happens today, don't think that the tribulation starts tomorrow morning. There, there's, there can be a span of time between. I believe it could be a span of weeks, months, or even years. Because that tribulation begins when Antichrist signs his treaty with Israel. That begins the seven-year calendar from Daniel chapter 9. All right. Wow, that's a side trip. First of all, not many Jews are going to survive it. The remnant survivors of Israel will be like the gleanings. The remnant survivors of Israel will be like the gleanings. This is the first in that day application that we have in verses 4, 5, and 6. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade and the fatness of his flesh will become lean. We're going to have a diminished population in Israel. And those that are left are going to be struggling. You know, a a poor country is a thin country. A fat country, do I need to finish that? Is one that has lots of peace, lots of food. Okay. The fatness of his flesh will become lean. It will be even like the reaper gathering the standing grain as his arm harvests the ears. Or it will be like one gleaning ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. There's a place of conflict. That's where uh, David fought Goliath. That was, I mean, it was a great place for, uh, it was a great place for agriculture, but the problem was the neighbors, <laughs> you know? And every, I mean, you could try to work those fields and, you know, every day you're just waiting for the Philistines to come stomp on you. All right, you're waiting for Goliath to come stomp on you. It's not a, you know, great place, but you know, we know where that valley goes. That valley goes right down there to the Philistine lands. And it's kind of their main avenue to march up towards the hill country of Judah or towards Jerusalem. And so there's uneasiness about it. And then there's the, the fewness of it. What's, what's left of the, of the remnant? What's left of the gleanings, we're told, in verse 6? Yet gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree. And so a method, if you don't want to climb up into the tree, you shake it and the stuff falls down. All right. And you catch it in the nets and there's your, there's your harvest. There's your harvest. Now here, you've got to understand the history on this. You've got to understand the, these are the isagogics of these passages. All right. You shake what you shake and you leave the rest. You don't go up there and pick every last olive off the tree. You don't go up there and strip it bare. You shake what you shake. What falls in your net is what the Lord's giving you, and that's your harvest. The gleanings are for the poor. The gleanings are for the, uh, for the folks, for the needy. And if they uh, are going to eat, they're going to go get it. They're gonna, if a man doesn't work, neither will he, will he eat. But the gleanings are there so that they can work and so that they can eat. Likewise, you have a square plot of land. You, you do your crop in a circle. And you leave the corners alone. So you make one harvest through in a circle, but you leave the gleanings. And the poor can go out there and get what's left of the gleanings. And that's how they eat. They work for their food and they gather the gleanings. But the corners are even best of all. Because the corners of the square property with the circle cut out, those corners are unharvested. That's that's a complete crop there in the corners. And the poor can go get those also. The poor and the needy. See, this was the welfare structure of, uh, of Israel in the ancient world. And it allowed for them to, this is what Ruth was doing when she went into Boaz's field. And Boaz even threw a few extra bonuses her way too, told his servants, said, make sure she's got a full basket when she leaves here tonight. But here it's describing the remnants. It's describing the few that are left behind. 
Yet gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives in the topmost bough, four or five in the branches of a fruitful tree, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. That's not much left. That's not much left. It describes the hardship that Israel is going to be going through in the tribulation, but I think even before the tribulation, leading up to the tribulation, the uh, circumstances they're going to find themselves in. Secondly now, in that day, man, humanity, will have regard for his maker and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. Interestingly enough, in that day, humanity will be humbled and identify the Creator as the God of Israel in that day. They're going to see Damascus as a ruin, Damascus as a haunt. They're going to see Israel, the remnant of Israel, living behind there in peace. And humanity is going to look at that and they're going to go, wow. Wow. Humanity will be humbled and identify the Creator as the God of Israel. So you don't think of hardship as altogether bad. I mean, sure, it's bad as the process unfolds. But what does it result in? You know, when, when, when in humanity is humbled before an act of nature, you know, when God humbles humanity, when a, when a tsunami sweeps through, or an earthquake, or a hurricane, or something... Human beings can very quickly be reoriented to their humanity, to their mortality, to their smallness. We are truly puny little dust creatures on this planet. And that's just before creation. Imagine before the Creator. Okay? And the description on this, I think, is is interesting because it describes, and in the third one it's even worse because in the third one we're going to see Israel's uh, apostasy. But here we're seeing Gentile... Humility before God. And if nothing else, I think through all the centuries, through all the years, God has used the survival of the Jewish people as a witness to his own existence. Think about how many people have tried to exterminate the Jews. And they survive. And they live. And they thrive. Napoleon was one such example. There were others. They would look at the Jews and they say, we can't explain this in human terms. Their God is looking after them. And so we read here, in that day man will have regard for his maker. His eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. So I believe this is post-rapture. This is during Israel's stewardship. They're going to be looking to the Jewish people in the Hebrew Scriptures. And I find it may be that this is going to be the very event. This is going to be the very a disaster that will launch the ministry of the 144,000. This may be the actual event that will allow for Jewish evangelists to go forth around the globe. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to cover this world and start telling the glory of the God of Israel, the glory of a resurrected Jesus Christ. So man will have regard for his maker, his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel, He will not have regard for the altars, the work of his hands, nor will he look to that which his fingers have made, even the asherim and the incense stands. That is, their their sex idols and their their, uh, drug inducements. Okay? In that day, their strong cities... Oh, that's verses 7 and 8. There we go. There's the in that day. Verses 7 and 8. Humanity will be humbled and identify the Creator as the God of Israel. The Asherim are the, uh, the fertility ritual locations. 
the incense stands. All right. More on that, but we'll let that go. (laughs) But think about it. Because the church has been raptured. What has been the testimony of God with, with the church gone? You know, today, we're the, we're the ambassadors. We're the ones that have the ministry of reconciliation committed to us. We're the ones that are the sweet aroma of Christ in every place. And we're the ones that can go, whether in Russia or Ukraine or America or wherever, we're the ones that go with the sweet aroma of the knowledge of God, and we, we proclaim Christ to this lost and dying world until that rapture sounds, that trumpet sounds, and we're all gone. We're all out of here. And then there is no believers left. So who preaches the glory of God then? Well, you know, when creation itself starts to testify to the glory of God and when the destruction of, of when God's hand is seen in history, such as what's going to happen here with the destruction of, uh, of Damascus, puny humanity is going to start being humbled before its maker. And I think that's significant. Man will have regard for his maker. And the very first approach is going to be on the basis of humanity versus deity, the creature-creator distinctions. All right? Then thirdly, verses 9 and 10, no longer facing Gentile threat, Israel will forget their God. (laughs) The Gentiles are being prepped for a great revival, and what happens to Israel? The bulk of them are going to go apostate. The bulk of them will go apostate. And as I say... Even they will have a remnant in terms of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. But no longer facing Gentile threat, Israel will forget their God. See, man has a maker, Israel has a God. Yahweh Elohim is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh Elohim is the God of Israel. Not the God of Damascus, not the God of these Gentiles. He's the God of Israel. They will forget their God even as the Gentiles are being humbled before their Creator. In that day, their strong cities will be like forsaken places in the forest, or like branches which they abandoned before the sons of Israel. The land will be a desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. This is why when Christians abandon doctrine, it's so pathetic. (laughs) When believers who should know better Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and for a while they're happy to be saved, but then after a while they lose sight of that. They forget about the grace that saved them. They forget about the glories of fellowshipping in His truth. And they, yeah, we see it happen here. You have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, you plant delightful plants and set them with vine slips of, of a strange God. In that day, you plant, you carefully fence it in. In the morning, you bring your seeds to blossom. But the harvest will be a heap in the day of sick, sickliness and incurable pain. You do everything you can possibly do to get these great results, and God brings it to nothing. That's what he does under divine discipline. Okay? You ever have days like that? <laughs> of course you do. We all do. But... You know, I, th- I think about what God does to humble those children who should be walking better. He takes away the very thing they're prideful of. takes away the very thing they would normally have success with. The very thing that would normally give them value or meaning or, or, or joy. And he just removes it. And says, no, you find your joy in me. You find your value in serving me. 
I love the, the story where Jesus is walking along the beach and he calls out to his disciples and they're out there in the boat all night long and they haven't caught a thing. Nothing. And these are experts. These are professionals. Nothing. All night long, nothing to show for it. And the next morning he says, all right, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. <laughs> Let me show you something here. You're going to get no satisfaction, no joy, no success as long as you keep doing it apart from me. But if you start listening to what I'm telling you to do, you get everything I give you. And so they, they did. They listened to what he had to say. They threw the nets on the other side. And what happened? The nets were so full, they were practically bursting, filled with fish. And then it hit them. Ooh, that's the Lord. <laughs> right? Didn't know that was the Lord there. But think about that pattern. And as we see it here, you think you've done all this. You carefully, you planned it. You carefully fence it in. You're going through every human effort to produce what you think should be a glorious crop. In the morning you bring your seed to blossom, but the harvest will be a heap in a day of sickliness and incurable pain. What have you finally resulted in? What have you finally achieved? All right, so no longer facing Gentile threat, Israel will forget their God. These are the three in that day applications. This is what we can look, what Israel can look forward to when God finally destroys Damascus. Then the roaring and the rumbling are going to be rebuked. Verses 12 through 14. The roaring and the rumbling will be rebuked. The chaos. Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas. There's actually a, there's a trinity here because uproar, roar, and roaring. All three of those are all cognates of the same term. And then rumbling, rumbling. We've got three more. The nations rumble like the rumbling of many waters. So we've got roaring and rumbling. And it's, um, I guess it's not bad in English, roaring and rumbling. We start them both with ours. But the, the, it really jumps out at you. The Hebrew text makes it clear that Isaiah is using wordplay to get the point across. That this roaring might make a lot of noise. It might scare a lot of people. God's not impressed. He's going to bring it to an end. The uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of the nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters and the nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away. God's good at this. Think about the Red Sea. Can, the, can those waters stand before the Lord? Think about Noah's flood. Think about Jesus and the storm on the sea. And he rebukes it, and it's calm. So he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind, or like whirling dust before a gale. So much for their huffing and puffing, okay? Almost like the three little pigs, <laughs> right? It's almost like, here's the nations, and they're a-huffing and they're a-puffing. And Jesus says, no, he puts an end to all of it. And then he starts his own huffing and puffing and they just, they're like the dust. They just get blown away. Where are they now? Okay, when he's done, they're just blown away like the whirling dust before a gale, like the chaff before the wind. That was one of the methods they used to sift their wheat. They would gather the wheat harvest. They would gather it all in. They would throw it up in the air and the wind would take the chaff away and then the good wheat would fall back down into their into their baskets or into their nets. 
And so that's the metaphor that's used here. The imagery that all this is going to be done away with second advent of Jesus Christ when he returns. At evening time, behold, there is terror before morning. They are no more. That's why I don't be afraid of any storm. Just go to bed. God will take care of that. You wake up in the morning to find, hey, 187,000 Assyrians were killed in the night. Your problems are gone. It's a new day. The Lord is merciful. At evening time, behold, there is terror. Before morning, they are no more. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who pillage us. So it ends with plunder and pillage. Two more word plays, okay? And all those that specialize in plundering Israel. For seven years, Antichrist is going to be plundering. The Jewish people are going to be abused. It's going to be horrific. It'll, it'll be, it'll, it's going to make the Nazi Holocaust pale, all right? But Jesus Christ will return. Israel will be provided for. Their plunderers and their pillagers will be done away with. Now, uh, real quickly, because I know we have communion today. We've already seen this. This roaring and rumbling invasion was previously introduced in chapter 13. This is another one of the markers in the text, another one of the indicators of the text. The language here of the roaring and the rumbling. We already had this in terms of our eschatology from chapter 13. The sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people. The sound of the uproar of the kingdoms. Of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. So, what was that? Four weeks ago, we were in chapter 13. All right? And we saw the eschatological nature of this rumbling and this roaring. Israel has been surrounded by enemies before, but never before have they had every nation of the earth against them. That will take place when Antichrist marshals his forces against Israel. It's eschatological. That's why we're not all worried about Damascus not having been destroyed yet. Okay? This rumbling, uh, roaring and rumbling was previously introduced. King David even prophesied. King David addressed these roaring seas in his messianic prophecies. Psalm 65, verses 7 and 8. See, compare Scripture to Scripture. See if these things are so. Allow for the Bible to interpret itself. Is Isaiah 17 the only place that God deals with these rumbling and roaring nations? These rumbling and roaring seas? No. King David prophesies about them in Psalm 65, verses 7 and 8. Put these passages together. And you see that the, uh, the outcome here is glorious. Psalm 65. Hmm. Verse 1 says, There will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God. To you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me as for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea. Notice now, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with his might. The new world arrangement that comes, Jesus Christ will rule from Mount Zion, but every other mountain is fixed by his authority. 
who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. You see, we're not talking oceanography here. We're talking demography. We're talking people, the Gentiles, the nations. The chaos of Satan's structure is done away with. He's going to bring in order in the millennial kingdom. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. I think this is in perfect harmony with what we had in Isaiah 17, where the Gentiles are humbled before their maker. They see his hand at work. They see his hand at work. Jesus illustrates this when he rebukes the raging seas. The disciples are all terrified because they think they're going to sink. Jesus is sleeping in the boat. Oh, which one of these do we want to read? They're all parallel. Let's do Mark. Mark 4.39. Mark 4.39. Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Story begins in verse uh, 35. On that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. So leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself, though, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? (laughs) All right, this is marvelous, because this is me, right? This is all of us. We get subjective in our testing, in our problems, in everything we're dealing with in life, and then all of a sudden it's all about us, and God either doesn't care or He's not aware of what's going on. God's asleep at the switch. And then, and then our prayer life is not so much worshiping God as begging Him for what's wrong with Him. Right? <laughs> Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So if that's your prayer life, that God doesn't care, He doesn't love you, So he wakes up and he says, he got up and he rebuked the wind. Same language, a rebuke. Same language in Isaiah 17, a rebuke. Same language in Psalm 68 or 65, a rebuke. He rebuked the wind. Said to them, hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Are you of little faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Okay, this is real early in the, in the ministry here. Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, shouldn't catch you by surprise. He's the God that wrote Psalm 65. Okay. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? All right. Ultimately, of course, Great tribulation. This raging sea is going to produce a beast. Satan's greatest champion is going to come forth from these rumbling seas and he's going to lead the nations against Israel in their coming tribulation. Revelation 13.1 There's two beasts in that chapter. The first one, Antichrist, comes from the sea. Second one, the false prophet is a Jewish false prophet comes up out of the land, out of the earth. But Satan's greatest champion will come forth from these rumbling seas and lead the nations against Israel in their coming 
tribulation. Well, we've got communion today. I'm rejoicing in how faithful the Lord is. I'm rejoicing that he's got a plan, that he can talk about the destruction of Damascus way back in the 7th century B.C. And he hasn't lost sight of that. He knows what he's doing. He gives part of it to Isaiah, gives more of it to Jeremiah, gives some of it even to David, what, 300 years before Isaiah, okay? Gives more of it to John in Revelation. A little here, a little there. Here, a little, there, a little. That's why we study the way we study. That's why we study line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. That's why we search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Paul said, I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's Word. It's the nature of a local church like this, the style of ministry that, that, we, uh, have, that we pursue. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you. Father, I thank you. The, uh, the waves are crashing. The uproar seems to be all around us. Uh, there's no shortage of, of uh, roaring and rumbling and uproar, and the world just seems to be uh, raging, Father, with everything. The economy, the stock market, the, the uh, terrorists, the, the, uh, everything, Father, just is, is all designed. This cosmos is designed to keep us in turmoil to keep us disoriented, to keep us looking everywhere except to you and the truth of your word. And yet, Father, your son is the one who says, hush, be still. And I love that, Father. I love the fact that we can, we can turn to you. We can abide in the shelter, in the shadow of your wings. Father, I thank you for the stability that your word provides us, that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But, Father, we are anchored We have an anchor that keeps the soul. Thank you, Father, for that anchor. Thank you for that perspective of Scripture. I pray, Father, as we learn just a little bit more today, something we didn't know yesterday, that, Father, we would take delight in the day-by-day discipline of studying to show ourselves approved. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, on Communion Sunday, we like to uh, hold off on our third hymn. So we only sang two before. We'll sing one now as the teachers and students are brought in.